All right, today is the first Sunday of Advent. This year we're going to be following the uh, liturgical calendar and the lectionary. So what we're going to start with this morning, since it's the first Sunday of Advent, is the first hour. We're going to deal with the history, origins, and the basic principles of Advent, and do a little bit of church history, talk about an early council and uh, the issue that they were facing, which some people connect Advent with. Um, we could we could well, we could probably turn that into a couple of weeks of study, but we'll try to make it through all of this in the first hour. That is the goal. Let's start with a, uh, I think a very important quote, um, and this kind of tells gives us a little insight, maybe to why this time of year kind of becomes the time that we celebrate Advent. We all know that obviously the Bible does not say when Christ was born, right? We can all agree with that. Amen. But obviously, the church chose December the 25th, and we know that that is filled with controversy and all kinds of conspiracy, because a lot of people would say December the 25th is connected with paganism, all right? So therefore, because it's connected with paganism, then the argument by many Christians is that we should not celebrate Christmas on the 25th. Okay, and I can understand that argument, but let me just, again, I, I say this all the time in my podcast. I say this all the time. I don't care which day you pick. You can find it associated with paganism. I don't care you pick the day. If you look the days of our week, the days, the, the names of our months, everything's associated with paganism in some way, shape, or form. If you look at a religious calendar, that 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 outlines the, the holy days and feast days and important days of every religion in the world. I, I mean, with, between witchcraft, paganism, and other religions. I mean, I mean you got to look at a calendar and go, can we use that day? Can we use that day? Remember, a day is just what? Just marks time, right? It's just a number. It's just, so we know we don't know when Jesus was born, but if that's the day that's chosen for it, that's fine. But there may be a reason why that maybe they, they were thinking some kind of symbolism, all right? And here is a quote that kind of captures some of this idea. It says, at this, the darkest period of the calendar year, the Christian church celebrates the light which has come to lighten a darkened world. So let me read that again. At this, the darkest period of the calendar year, the Christian church celebrates the light which has come to lighten a darkened world. And especially with our time change, we all know what it's like. We, to come to church on Wednesday night, it is dark. When we, when, even getting here on Sunday night, it's almost dark. It was definitely dark by the time we leave. So if you, if, if you add in the time change, it does feel like the darkest time. The days are shorter right? More darkness. So you, you can see where then, because when you think of Advent, you think of the light of the world who has come, right? Uh, you have the Advent wreath with the Advent candles. So you can see where that symbolism may have come in um, at that point and why it was used. So let me just give you that quote one more time, because I think it kind of captures a lot of the ideas. At this, the darkest period of the calendar year, the Christian church celebrates the light which has come to lighten a darkened world. What I think, just to get it out of the way, because Christians always want to fight about this, I don't know why we fight about December the 25th. I really don't. I understand 
all of the claims about paganism. To me, the issue is not the day we celebrate it. What's, what's most important to us? It's not the day that we celebrate it. Is, is the event we're celebrating one biblical? And number two, is it actually a true historical event, right? And if it's a true historical event and it's biblical, unless the Bible gives you the date, it doesn't matter which day we pick to celebrate it, right? And what that day is associated with is irrelevant, right? It would be like, it's kind of like the meat offered unto idols kind of thing, right? It's like at some point we have to stop doing that, but... So at least we can get that out of the way. All right, so let's try to kind of build a little bit on the, uh, on the origins of this and a little bit of kind of what Advent is. The Advent season is a period of time observed in various Christian traditions leading up to the celebration of Christmas. It is a time of anticipation and preparation for the birth of Christ. The origins, development, history, and basic principles of Advent can be traced back to early Christianity, right? And here's some of the origins of it, all right? Are you ready? It appears according to at least a couple of sources. The earliest official mention of Advent practices comes at the Council of, everybody ready for the name of this council? S-A-R-G-O- S-S-A, the Council of Sargosa, I guess is how we would say it. And get, does anyone know the year of that council? All right, 380 A.D., at least according to one source. 380 A.D., okay, 380, and that this is the first kind of mention of Advent. And there's this, and now typically when we ever, whenever we, and we know this in this church because we've studied the church councils and just, once again, of all the councils we've studied, isn't it amazing that over and over and over I can mention a council and we can all say, never heard of it. That means we could be studying councils forever, right? Which, I mean, just, it's kind of frustrating sometimes because you want to know all of these. Exactly, exactly. Right. And everybody understand the ecumenical meaning, it basically represents at least most of the church. Right? There may have been groups here or there that it didn't represent, but for the most part, the church. These other ones are probably more what? Regional. Regional. Specific areas. But there's one thing that we do know. The councils usually met for what reason? Always because there was some problem, there was some error that they were trying to address, right? You can, if, typically, if you, if you name the council, one of the easiest ways sometimes to remember the councils is to remember the problem they were addressing. All right, does that make sense? Okay, well, this one was addressing a specific problem, all right? They met to answer a Gnostic-inspired movement. Does anybody know the name of this movement? Priscillianism. Priscillianism was the name of this Gnostic-inspired movement that they met in 380 AD to try to address or try to deal with. We're going to learn a little bit about this movement called Priscillianism. Now, if you think Priscillianism is named after a woman, it's not. It's named after a man. Okay, but Priscillianism. All right, everybody ready? Here's a little bit of history here. 
Marcus, a native of Memphis in Egypt, came to Spain and taught Gnostic theories. Two of his followers, a Spanish woman named Agape, and the, and the other one was Helpitis, I think is how you would say her name, Helpitis. So there were two women. So let's go through this. The first person, his name, his name is Marcus, and he was a native of what? Egypt. He came where? To Spain. He taught Gnostic theories. Two of his followers, a Spanish woman named Agape, and the name of the other woman was Helpitis, H-E-L-P-I-D-I-U-S, right? Okay, so here's, so we got two women, and they converted someone by the name of Priscillian, who was a layman. And this person who gets converted, Priscillian, obviously that's where the name of this whole idea, this movement comes from. Now, this man was a layman of noble birth. He had lots of money. He was very bold, restless, eloquent, learned through much reading, very ready at debate and discussion. Through his ability of public speaking and a reputation for extreme asceticism, he would go to extreme measures and asceticism. Everybody know what we're referring to when we refer to asceticism? Anybody? Okay. I'm just asking if anybody knows. No, asceticism is the idea of, of basically doing without. Like it would be like, I'm not going to sleep on a bed. I'm going to sleep on a floor. I'm not going to have any heat. I'm going to go without food. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these things to myself in order to be more godly or to be more holy. Asceticism was very much practiced in the early church. Right? Very, yes, I mean, he, was, he was known for extreme version of it. Right? Now, because of this, then he gains a good reputation, right? Because if you're, if you're practicing extreme asceticism, you're going to look what? Holy, dedicated, pious, committed, willing to sacrifice. And if you're good at debate, public speaking, and you have money, right, you're going to have the ability maybe to attract followers, right? Um, Priscillian attracted a large following. See, see, they know what happens, all right? Including two bishops. So two bishops of the church start following him. Right? And if I gave you their names, it wouldn't matter at this point. Now, I'm going to try to, this is going to get all wacky and confused, but I'm going to do my best to try to describe this teaching. I'm going to do a lot of reading here for us to understand it. It's going to have its basic, you're going to, we have the basic concepts of Gnosticism thrown into this. There may be some distinction, but I'll try. So you don't have to write all of this down. We'll just try to write down the key points, all right? Do you mean to go through any of that again? We have Marcus from Egypt who comes to Spain. He teaches Gnostic theories. Two of his followers, a Spanish woman named Agape and Hadidius, or however you want to say her name, converted Priscillian, who was a layman. You learned everything about him. He, he brings in a, a large following. The most important thing about him is he brings in two bishops to follow him. Now, why is that significant? Now you have leadership of the church. 
Now you have leadership of the church following him. Now this is where things are going to get complicated and why you can see why there was a council probably held to go, hey, stop it, right? You can't do that. Right? So here is a little bit of his teaching. The Priscillianist taught a Gnostic doctrine of dualism, a belief in the existence of two kingdoms. Now remember, somehow this has something to do with Advent, right? Okay, remember the um, uh, first the quote I gave you at the beginning? The darkest point of the calendar? We celebrate the light, right? Now, they, he taught the existence of how many kingdoms? Two. One of these kingdoms is the kingdom of light. And the other one is the kingdom of darkness. Angels and the souls of men were said to be severed from the substance of the deity. Human souls were intended to conquer the kingdom of darkness, but fell and were imprisoned. And guess where the souls of men that were supposed to conquer the kingdom of darkness, guess where they were imprisoned into? Now, if you know Gnosticism, you know the answer here. Yeah, there you go. The material body. They were imprisoned in the material body. Remember, that was the whole thing about Gnosticism? Okay. Or what are the key elements of Gnosticism? They were imprisoned in the material bodies. Thus, both kingdoms were represented in man. So then man becomes a representation of the two kingdoms. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, right? Because the soul is where? Inside, but it's trapped and the material body. The soul would be the kingdom of light, and the body would be the kingdom of darkness. Okay, everybody get that kind of basic dualistic idea? Sounds good? Their conflict was symbolized on the side of light by the 12 patriarchs, heavenly spirits who corresponded to certain of man's powers, and on the side of darkness, by the signs of the Zodiac. All right, 12 patriarchs, the 12 signs of the Zodiac. Okay. The symbols of matter and the, uh, and the lower kingdom. So, so the Zodiac fits with the symbols of matter in the lower kingdom, they would say. The salvation of man consists in liberation from the domination of matter. So how is a man saved? To be separated from the domination of matter. Now you can see why then asceticism may come into play because you're denying yourself. You're against the body, against the flesh, right? You're trying to separate yourself from it. That's where the asceticism may come into play. The 12 heavenly spirits, having failed to accomplish their release, the Savior comes in a heavenly body that appeared to be like that of other men. Please note, the Savior comes appearing like other men, but with a heavenly body. Remember, that was what was the big deal about Gnostics and in, in the Incarnation? Christ did not come in the flesh. Remember, that's the whole, remember, that's the whole point of the gospel. First John. Okay, right. He came in the flesh. He came. Remember how John emphasizes that over and over and over? Right? Remember, 
Whenever people read 1 John, everyone thinks 1 John is a test book to prove someone's safe. 1 John is a book to do what? It's a polemic against Gnosticism. Remember we talked about this? And what's it emphasized at the beginning of 1 John? We have touched, right? He came in the flesh, came in the flesh. Light and darkness is also talked about in 1 John, talking about the Antichrist. That is all about Gnosticism, Gnosticism, Gnosticism. Every, almost every church in America, when they teach 1 John, they do not teach it accurately. They turn it into a lordship manual. If you know someone reading 1 John as a lordship manual, they have no clue what they're talking about. They're utterly clueless. That is a book against Gnosticism. All right? It's comparing Gnosticism maybe with the true concepts, right? And it's, and it's going to argue because Gnostics, well, sometimes what? What would sometimes the Gnostics would argue is you could do what? Anything you wanted with the body because it didn't count. Remember, that was another problem within Gnosticism, right? So John argues against them. Remember, we covered all of that. We spent weeks and months covering that. I cannot stress the importance of, of understanding that. All right, so the Savior came in a heavenly body that appeared to be like that of other men. Please note, it appeared to be like that of other men because I don't believe he was truly in the flesh because he could not be in the flesh. Because if he was truly in the flesh, then the heavenly was then in, imprisoned in the material. Now, we believe he was truly in the flesh, but he was, what, he, what did he not have? Sin nature. And why did he not have a sin nature? The virgin, virgin birth, the virgin birth, the virgin birth, all right? The virgin birth, okay? Everybody understand that? We refer to that just to make sure this, everyone in this church should know this because every time this, this time of year shows up, Christians all over the place make this mistake. We do not refer to the incarnation of Christ or the virgin birth of Christ or the f- fact that Christ did not have a sinful nature. We do not refer to that as the immaculate conception. Everyone understand that, right? It's not, we do not refer to it as the Immaculate Conception. If you know someone referring to the birth of Christ as the Immaculate Conception, please pull them aside and tell them to stop speaking. The Immaculate Conception is a doctrine referring to whom? Mary. And what is it referring to? That she was conceived without sin. She was sinless. All right? And the argument is a logical argument. She has to be sinless in order for Christ to be sinless. Everyone thinks it makes a big, and from a Catholic mindset, it's not so much about Mary, it's about Christ, all right? So everyone, 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 Catholics get frustrated because they're like, you people don't know what you're talking about. And then people are running around claiming the amount, and it's like, would everyone just stop talking? Because, it's the, I mean, it's not that hard to figure these things out. You know, you can read a couple of books and, and read some definitions, but even though everyone has access to information on phones, they still put forth these bad ideas. So we have to make sure we correct all of that, all right? So, that, so according to this idea, the Savior came in a heavenly body, and once again, it appeared to be like that of other men. Through his doctrine and his apparent death, he released the souls of the men from the influence of earthly matter. Please note, there's that idea that salvation is somehow releasing us from the influence of earthly matter. These doctrines can be harmonized with the teaching of Scripture. Now, listen, this is very important. 
Everyone pay close attention to what I'm about to read here. Everybody ready? These doctrines can be harmonized with the teaching of Scripture only by a complex system of exegesis rejecting conventional interpretations and relying on personal inspiration. Did everyone hear that? Let me read that again. All right, this is very important. These doctrines could be harmonized with the teaching of Scripture only by a complex system of exegesis. Now, some may argue a complex system of eisegesis. Everybody knows the difference between exegesis and eisegesis? Exegesis, you're doing what? Pulling from the text. Eisegesis, you're reading into the text. And there is a fine line between those two. Because over and over and over again, everyone claims to be doing what? Exegesis. Everyone claims it. I argue about 90% of the time, we're doing eisegesis. Because we typically, and we talk about this all the time, when you become a Christian, what do you first learn? What to believe. And once you what to believe, then from that point on, you do what? You read that into the text. Rarely are you st- do you start your Christian journey by like, we're not going to teach you any doctrine. We're not going to teach you any theology. What we're going to teach you is Bible study methods, and you're going to utilize those Bible study methods. And once you've done your observational study, then we'll move to hermeneutical principles to teach you interpretive. That doesn't work. In fact, most Christians still couldn't even are, couldn't, couldn't tell you anything about hermeneutics, exegesis, eisegesis, or even how to study the Bible. If, you've, if, you've, if you talk to many Christians, okay, give me the Bible study methods. What do you think? You think they're going to be able to give you 12 of them? Probably not even 10 of them. Probably not even five of them. If you talk about an observa- observational exercise, they probably wouldn't even know how to do that because they've probably never even seen an observational exercise done where? Inside church. When someone comes here and we do an observational exercise, they're probably like, what is that weirdness? But that's the way it's supposed to be. So, but please note, I think it was eisegesis, but all right. But listen, this is the key. Rejecting conventional interpretations. So they were rejecting what? How, how it had been standard, uh, uh, the typical way of understanding it. The standard interpretations, and what did they rely on? Two words. What did he rely on? Personal inspiration. Personal inspiration. Now, immediately, I mean, for, for, for Protestants, for Protestants, this is a slap in the face. Because that sounds like the entire Protestant Reformation. Individuals interpret the Bible based off our own personal understanding. And now, now and the personal, personal inspiration, you could, sound, could say that sounds a little bit like charismatic, right? Well, the spirit, because what, what do Christians constantly claim? What does the Protestant world constantly claim? How do you understand the Bible? Come on, ask your Christian friends. How do we understand the Bible? The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. This is the, go just drive around all the churches today in Abilene. Start calling them, right? 
The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. The Holy Spirit opened your eyes. The Holy Well, that's an inspiration, right? But it's personal. Now, guess what's going have to happen to step what's going to ha- happen to stop this? A council is going to step up to contradict it and condemn it. What is that referred to? Church authority or magisterial authority. That's how it's addressed. How would we address it in the Protestant world? You're wrong. And then they would say, you're wrong. There you go. And then some people, if they thought that, that Priscillian was wrong, then they would do what? They would just go to another church. And then people in this church who thought he was right would leave this church to go to that church. And then guess what? Probably then the church that was fighting the Priscillians, right? They would uh, probably end up splitting and coming into two churches. And then the people, and then the Priscillians would probably split. And then next thing you know, probably within 30 years, you would have four or five different groups, right? Because that's the way the Protestant world goes. Because there's no what? I hate to say it, there's no authority. Now, everyone who listens will get mad at me and say, yes, there is! It's what? The Bible! But guess what uh, Priscillianism would have claimed? (laughs) The Bible. Oh, that's... Oh, that just makes me so... So sad. All right. The Priscillians respected most of the Old Testament, but guess what they rejected? What do you think they rejected in the Old Testament? What do you think? Remember, Gnostics, they're Gnostics, Gnostics, Gnostics. Creation. The creation story. God creating material. Right? Uh, they're, they're, well, if I have to try to explain their counter, we'll be here for the next couple of months. But remember their dualism? Basically, there was a creation and then it splits, right? And when the material kind of becomes the dark and then the spirit becomes, and it becomes all kinds of, that goes back to that dualistic concept. So it's almost a different uh, way of understanding what happened. They, be, they did believe in several of the apocryphal scriptures. All right? So they did, were, were genuine and inspired. Because of the Priscillians' belief that matter and nature were evil, they became ascetics, ascetics and fasted on Sundays and Christmas Day. Right? Because matter and nature were evil, they constantly... Asceticism, they tried to do what? Separate themselves from that. So they would go without food and do different things. And so fasting and some of these ideas would have been there. And just what's one of the, and again, I just want to make sure we understand that, that how, can I, how can I say this? All right? I got to say this in a way that doesn't sound heretical. Right? But uh, we, we have to say this. External and, and I think the Bible will will, will play will, would support what I'm about to say. So if you disagree, then that's okay. But I think Scripture would support me here. External religious piety by no means proves 
theological correctness or even godliness or even salvation. All right? External piety, external what appears to be godliness and holiness, that does not... And our minds, we always connect that, right? If someone, look, they're sacrificing this and they don't do this and they don't watch TV and they don't go to movies and they don't dance and they don't do this and they don't have long hair and they don't have tattoos and they don't do this and they don't drink and they don't do that. Look at how godly they are. That may not have any proof of anything. Right? Muslim, we can look at Muslims, we can look at Mormons. There are people who are not Christians, right? There was an entire movement, I don't know how popular the entire movement is now, but there used to be a movement that was very, very popular called Straight Edge. Straight Edge was very much connected with the punk scene or punk music, right? These are not Christians. They are atheist agnostics. Guess what they did not do? Drink or do drugs, Condemned it. Absolutely not. We don't drink. We don't do drugs. We're better than you. They weren't Christians. You don't, just so that you know, you don't need, I know it's hard for Christians to wrap your mind around this, you don't need God to have some level of external discipline, commitment, and Staying away from certain things. Because lots of religions have demonstrated great commitment to external forms of righteousness, right? So, 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 but whenever we see that, we immediately perceive that to be what? Godly, righteous. So you can see why the movement would have gained some followers, Right? Because they're practicing this extreme form of asceticism. You're like, look at their commitment. Their, their commitment. And, and guess what? The same problem shows up where? In the New Testament, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees focused a lot on the external. What did Jesus say about their external righteousness? Outside, you look great. Inside, you're trash. So Jesus made it very clear to make sure we understood that true godliness is not just an external thing, it's an internal thing. And the minute Jesus shows us that, then we all realize that we're not godly. <laughs> the end, right? That's why I get so tired of, of say, lordship, where they always put the focus on what? The external. Well, congrats. pat yourself on the back. You think you're so godly. But if we take five minutes to look on the inside, we're going to find out that nobody is. Now, that doesn't excuse the external. It just demonstrates that the external doesn't necessarily prove anything. All right? That, that's so important, all right? Uh, Okay, be, uh, so this is uh, interesting. Because of their doctrines, um, and they believed that men in general could not understand the higher past, they, they believed that their, their doctrines were so complex, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, was so complex and difficult that the average person could not really understand the Priscillianist, or at least those of them who were enlightened, were permitted to tell lies for the sake of a holy end. All right. So they thought they they were able that if their if their if their ultimate goal was something good, they could tell a lie, so they could justify lying in that way. All right. 
And this movement gained enough attention that a very famous person wrote a book against them. Augustine wrote a book that if we translated it, it's called Against Lying. And it was in a reaction to this doctrine because these, they were justifying lying in the name of God because, hey, we, we, can, we can lie. We can do so. We can, we can do this. And, that, well, that's, that's the movement. Now, it's in that context that Advent begins to kind of take shape. This is, this is where um, how one, per, or one source states it. The heresy essentially held to a harsh form of dualism, light versus dark, body versus soul. So perhaps, now this is says perhaps, the celebration of the incarnation made theological sense as a counterbalance to this heresy. The council was not committed to any specific dating of Advent, though and only suggested people attend church daily between December the 17th and the 29th. So the council was not like, we're not going to set a specific date, but we think between December the 17th and 29th, you should do what? Go to church every single day. Because they were trying to fight this concept, right? And what did they want to emphasize during this time? No, the incarnation. Yeah, they weren't, they, they weren't going to go after the ascetic approach by external righteousness. They were, wanted everyone to focus on the incarnation, the incarnation. Because the incarnation is a complete rejection of this idea to a certain level, right? Christ did not come in the appearance of a man. Christ came as a man, true flesh, true human. Remember, we, what do we refer to this Christ being truly God and truly man? The hypostatic union, right? So they, so in a sense, if you think about it, Advent was there to do what? To fight heresy. To fight heresy. And in, in fact, over and over and over again, typically the celebrations in the church were to fight against heresy or to fight against it. That's why it was so probably detrimental to the church in many ways to do what? To throw out the liturgical calendar and to throw out the lectionary. But the church decided to throw out the liturgical calendar and throw out the lectionary for what reason? Well, one, we hated anything that had anything that even remotely touched Catholicism, but we wanted our own personal inspiration. If you think about it, it was kind of like following that because the churches wanted to do what? What they wanted. To do their own thing. Where a lectionary and a liturgical calendar does what? Takes it out of your hands. Takes it out of your hands, right? If I pull out the lectionary, I'm forced to deal with what the reading is for today. The readings are for today, right? It's out of my hands, we're supposed to celebrate Advent today, right? This is the first Sunday of Advent. It, it removes it from your hand. Now, that's a good thing. That's good. You could argue there could be some bad from it. But you could see it, it was de- all of these things were designed to do what? To try to protect and fight these heresies that became so prominent. All right? Now, to read a little bit more about it, uh, some will say the Advent can be traced to the... Uh, so, that, so that's 380, Right? 380 AD, right? Everybody got that? Now, 
we, we have to admit, other than that council, there's a lot of things we don't know with certainty about it. We do have some records indicating that Christians in the 4th and 5th centuries began setting aside a period of fasting and preparation before Christmas. The word Advent itself comes from a Latin word, which means coming or arrival, signifying the coming of Christ. So basically, they begin to set aside a period of time for what? For fasting and preparation. Fasting and preparation. So the fasting idea even came over into the people celebrating Advent, right? The Priscillians were using it, but now even people celebrating Advent, fasting becomes a major part of it. Now, why did fasting become a major part of it? Because Advent was seen as what? A a time of penance. A time of repentance. A time of preparing. When When it says preparing, preparing yourself in what way? Preparing yourself for the arrival of Christ, the arrival of God, the arrival of the judge. Okay, so that's, that's why it, it took on that, that nature. Now, of course, we know what was going to happen. It starts off not so much as a time of celebration, but more as a time of penance and fasting and that type of thing. And of course, over time, which direction do we always move? Something more positive, more happy, and food and celebration. And yeah, yeah, we know that's the way it's always going to go, right? Uh, In the early church, Advent was primarily a time of fasting and penitence, similar to the season of Lent. Remember, what do I always say that it was referenced as? That Advent was called Little Lent, right? Remember I always say that? It was referred to as Little Lent because it uh, it was very similar to that. It was seen as a way to spiritually prepare for the celebration of Christ's birth. It was a time to spiritually prepare. So the concept is, and the way it's supposed to be, and I know it's hard for us to maintain this, is for four weeks we are to be spiritually preparing, spiritually preparing for the celebration of the birth of Christ. It's hard to spiritually prepare for things, is it not? We understand financial preparing maybe, preparing in all kinds of other ways, but spiritual preparing I think sometimes we struggle, I think we struggle deeply with that, all right? Now, over time, Advent evolved to include other elements such as scripture reading, prayer, liturgical practices, the, the, um, the Advent wreath, and all of these other things begin to emerge. By the Middle Ages, Advent became firmly established in Western Christianity and took on a more joyful and celebratory tone. Of course, that makes sense, right? That's the way everything always is going to go. The focus shifted from strict fasting to the anticipation of Christ's coming and the expectation of the second coming. So please note, over time, it stopped becoming more just about the first coming. It also became about the second coming. So Advent now, as we understand it, is a time of preparing for the first and the second coming. Now we prepare ourselves for the celebration of the first coming and we prepare ourselves for the actual event of the second coming. 
And that's why, if you were to even look at the lectionary readings for today, the lectionary readings for today, I won't go through all of them, but just start with the gospel reading for today. Jesus said to his disciples, be constantly on the watch, stay awake. You do not know, and the appointed time will come. It is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home uh, and, and places his servants in charge, each with his own task. And he orders a man at the gate to watch with a sharp eye. Look around you. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether at du- dusk, at midnight, when the cock crows, or at early dawn. Do not let him come suddenly and catch you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on guard. So even the gospel reading today is all about what? The second coming, the second coming, the second coming, the second coming. Now, you could argue that maybe that has something to do with 70 AD, but that's, that's neither here nor there, All right? Um, the liturgical colors in, in many churches associated with Advent is typically purple. And why would it be purple? You may know what the liturgical color of purple represents. Penance. Penance, so the color still maintains that. And some traditions, and most traditions, when you look at the Advent wreath, the third candle is what color? Pink. And what does that, sell, what does that represent? Joy. Joy. It's some joy. And why do they do that? Well, two solid weeks of, of fasting and penance, that's a lot. So that third week, you get a little reprieve, joy. And then the fourth week, you go back to the, the purple, the penance. And then, then at Christmas Eve night, around midnight, right? In fact, that's where Catholics have Catholic uh, Christmas Mass at midnight. Why? In the darkest hour of the night, we celebrate the coming of the Light, you see, it goes right back to, in a sense, fighting. See, even after all of these centuries, you're still fighting some of that original concept, right? That in that darkness came the light and the light came in the flesh and you celebrate the incarnation. And that's why a lot of times, if you, if you, even if you don't have mass at midnight, if you use the uh, Advent wreath, what's the candle right in the middle? The white candle called the Christ candle. And what are you supposed to do? Right at midnight. Light the Christ candle to, to say the light has now come into the world to save us from darkness, right? So that, that's uh, the concept. Now, I'm going to go through quickly. Here are the four, four basic principles, all right, of Advent, they, and and they, here's, here they are. I'll just give you the four basic principles. Okay. Now, what I wanted to do is look up scriptures on these principles, but we don't have time. Maybe we'll have time to have you look up one or two. We'll see. All right, you ready? The first basic principle of Advent is the principle of hope. Advent serves as a reminder of the hopeful expectation of the Messiah's coming into the world, It emphasizes the fulfillment of God's promises and the anticipation of his redemption. It is is supposed to be four weeks. One of those, at least, you could break these down into four weeks if you wanted to. And people approach these in different ways. But at least one basic principle is the concept of hope. Right? 
it's, it, it clearly was supposed to be hopeful for Israel. Like a lot of people forget the Israel connection here. But Israel was not in a good position, right? They, they were in a bad, they were in a bad, bad, bad way, okay? They were, they were not in a good place spiritually. They were not even in a good place as a nation. They were in a bad place. And remember, what is the hope of the announcement of Christ to the angel announcing that Christ would come? It's found even in what they would call him. They would call his name Jesus. For what reason? He would save his people from their sins. I believe that's Israel focus, Israel focus. I know uh, the reformed people will lose their minds. No, it's not. It was. Okay, I'm sorry. It was. Okay. To say that it wasn't is ridiculous. All right. It was, it was Israel focused. So there was hope. Hope that he would come in. Now they understood that salvation to be what? Not a salvation from their sins, but a salvation from their enemies. Okay, so they misunderstood a little bit, and we, 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 we understand that. But it's to be hopeful. It's hopeful for us. Now, I know that, that typically when we refer to hope, right, when we refer to hope, and, and I think this is where the church has done such great psychological damage to people, whenever the church typically speaks of hope, we speak of hope not in hope from our sins, but typically hope that, oh, well, you're going through a bad situation. Trust in God. In a sense, have hope because God will fix it. God will eliminate the pain. God will eliminate the suffering. God will eliminate the disease. God will help you with a job. God will help you financially. And I get frustrated with that because I think we can know from life and I think even from scripture, it doesn't work that way, does it? Everyone should say amen. It does not work that way, all right? To think that it does is ridiculous, right? How did it work out for John the Baptist? He goes to prison. Jesus doesn't even bother to visit him. Doesn't even bother to visit him. John the Baptist doesn't know what's going on, tries to get some answers. He gets some answers, Jesus, and he doesn't even really get great answers in a sense. He's just like, hey, these things are happening. That's a fulfillment of scripture. Like, it's not a very personal response, is it, right? Go tell John this is happening and this is happening. Okay, it's not like, hey, man, I'm so sorry that you're in prison. Like, it's not that kind of response. And then John the Baptist gets his head cut off. And does he get resurrected? No, he dies. All right? The, 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 even the apostles, what happens to all of them? Mortar. Yeah, they're all, they are martyred and killed, right? So, I mean, uh, suffering happens over and over. And then throughout 2,000 years of just church history, just forget martyrdom, martyrdom just our normal life. People starve, people die, disease, crime, Horrible things. And so sometimes we think of hope as hope is what God's going to do for us now. Hope is what Christ did for us in our salvation and then what God will ultimately do in the ultimate redemption of all things and glorification. And I think we, we so focus hope on a, a removal or a deliverance from the problem now. We, Christians love to say that. And it's just such, I, I, I get tired of it because it just doesn't work that way, right? My hope is not that God's going to fix my problem now. 
My hope is that my sins have been forgiven and that Christ will return and then there will be ultimate glory. In the meantime, my hope again is focused on that spiritual, not on how God may deliver me from the temporal problems. Does, does that make some sense? But that hope, that hope, 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 hope. So we, we need to think of scriptures at this point. Uh, I, we, won't, we, we don't have the time to do so, but you should try to find scriptures related to hope. You should try to find three, maybe five scriptures that relate to hope in the Bible that mentions hope or at least points in that direction because that's a major emphasis and a major principle of Advent. If you want to celebrate it, then just think of some scriptures that relate to hope, all right? Next, preparation. Advent is a time for spiritual reflection and preparation. It encourages believers to examine their hearts, repent of sin, and make room for Christ in their lives. It's about preparing. So you need to think about five scriptures that would, that would seem to, in some way, indicate spiritual preparation. Now, I was gonna, we were going to work on all of these and look up all kinds of scriptures for all of these, but of course, the history took, took up too much time, right? So what's the first principle? Hope. Second, preparation, right? Third, anticipation. Advent invites believers to actively await and long for the coming of Christ. It is supposed to create a sense of eager anticipation, reflecting the longing of humanity for God's presence. It should try to create anticipation. Now, I know it's hard it's hard for that to happen, right? I mean, it's, it's, in some ways, it's a losing battle. Like in some ways, it's a losing battle because uh, of just what? I mean, again, I say it all the time. The worst thing to ever happen in the history of Christendom, as far as it relates to Advent and Christmas, was watch. what? What is the worst thing to ever happen in the history of Christianity in regards to Advent and Christmas? Declaring it a federal holiday was the worst thing that could ever happen in the history of, of, of Advent and Christmas, at least here in the United States of America. Because the minute it becomes a federal holiday, what happens? It becomes a secular holiday. And this is, the, this is why I get so sick of Christian nationalists and get so sick of the political hijacking of the American church. Do not make a Christian holiday a national holiday. Don't do it. It's, it, it's detriment. First, I think it's garbage because it should not be a federal holiday because the, the government should not be recognizing a, a, a spiritual holiday. It should not. Stay out of it. But the church shouldn't want it. Because guess what happens when it becomes a holiday? Do you think that's going to make people go, oh, I'm going to celebrate the birth of Christ. Oh, I'm going to go to church. No, they're going to be like, I got time off. I'm going to make it about whatever. What's Memorial Day supposed to be about? Remembering the soldiers who died. What is Memorial Day about? Come on, it's the first day of summer. It kicks off the, the, the summer I mean, that's what it, for me, from a music fan, it kicks off with what we call, what, what's going to be the song of the summer? It kicks off a whole 
a couple of months of music festivals and album releases. I mean, it's all, I mean, everyone's got their thing. Baseball, whatever. The beach. Now, I don't blame people for that, right? Because guess what? When you try to tell people this is what you will celebrate, what will people typically do? I'm going to do what I want to do. As we used to refer to in the military, I hated when they demanded we had mandatory fun. It drove me nuts. Oh, we're going to close the clinic down today. We're going to have a picnic. No, just let me go home. I don't want to go to your picnic. Don't tell me I have to go do that. I hate mandatory fun. Okay, give me the option to have optional fun. And I get to choose the fun I want to have, right? Because the fun you tell me to have is probably not fun. I can't, I can't stand that, right? So um, the making it a federal holiday, you know what it was going to turn into then. What was it going to turn into? A secular holiday. And you can't, I don't blame anyone for that, Right? And then Christians walk around with a chip on our shoulders. They didn't say Merry Christmas at Target. Let's boycott them. (laughs) They want to call them a holiday tree and not a Christmas tree. We're being persecuted. And then Fox News does their never-ending, the war on Christmas. Just stop it. Just stop it. The world is under no obligation to remember, think, or even care about the birth of Christ. Can we all say that? They should not, are not under any obligation. And if churches are so worried about the war on Christmas, here's a novel idea. How about go to church on Christmas? They don't even do that. Stop telling Target to say Merry Christmas. Actually show up on Christmas. You go to most churches on Christmas, what do you find? Hello? Is there anybody in there? Gone. And most likely, other services are going to get canceled in relation to Christmas, right? They're going to cancel a Sunday night or maybe the Wednesday before. Why? Because it's a, even the church knows, if we're even honest, we celebrate what? Everything other than Christ, if we're even remotely honest. But it's supposed to be a time of anticipation, but that is long gone, all right? And then number four, joy. Those are the four basic principles. Hope, preparation, anticipation, and joy. Now, sadly, uh, uh, the hope part usually gets messed up. The preparation part gets messed up. The anticipation part gets messed up. And the joy part gets messed up. But those are the four basic principles. All right. Everybody got that? All right. Let's pray, and then we'll get ready for the next hour. All right. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we, we all are guilty of taking this time of year that is supposed to be about the coming of your son and we make it about everything else. Forgive us for that. Forgive us for our attempts to try to make this something that we force the world to celebrate, which we should have never done. Uh, forgive us for all of that, but let us try to find a pure, more biblical and godly way to celebrate and remember the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in the name of Christ. And God's people said...